Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have Dr. Stacy Sims with me. She is a PhD and an international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist. And her aim is to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. Stacey and I talk about all this today on the podcast. I had such a great time talking to her. It was like talking to a sister from another mister because she really is into applying the research in a way that makes sense for women. So much of research has been conducted on men and then applied to women and we're different. And so she really tells us how we're different and how we should embrace the, the differences. And then she creates this world this platform for healthy women who understand their bodies, know how to work with their unique physiology, and know how to understand their hormones and how we can use this information to make us empowered in our performance, in our activities, and in our lives. We talk a little bit about nutrition, menopause, periods, and all kinds of great stuff. So enjoy, and please let me know what you think of my conversation with Dr. Stacy. Welcome, Stacy. So happy to have you on here today. Thanks for having me, and good afternoon, I guess. <laughs> good afternoon, yes. And I was looking up all your information. I felt like we were like we were separated at birth or something. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I know. I love it. I love it. I love it when we're on the same like wavelength. So you are a, an international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. How did you become interested in this track that you are now in? Uh, it all selfish, I guess, is the best way to put it. I think we all get into what we love through the things that we want to find out for ourselves. So um I was a very inquisitive child, and then when I got to undergrad and was on the crew team and got into exercise physiology and started asking questions and not getting the right answers and then progressing through you know, grad school and, and still seeing there wasn't a lot of research on women, especially female athletes. Uh, so the drive really to do what I do and how I got to be here was trying to improve my own performance as an athlete as well as teammates, and then find the answers to questions that people kept asking me. Mm, I bet. And I, I love that um, 
you did a TED Talk, and it's called Women Are Not Small Men. I want you to elaborate on that, but my gut instinct is that a lot of the research I'm sure that you were privy to as a physio, you know, getting a PhD in physiology was mostly conducted on men. And I imagine that what happens is a lot of the, what we hear now in nutrition field and in sports performance is just kind of a uh, derivative of that, which is not necessarily applicable to women. Is that what this topic was about? Uh, sort of, but in going through everything and, and realizing that the standard model is that cis male who's 18 to 22 and everything's generalized to women, which is very frustrating. But when you're like trying to convey that to people, it doesn't quite sink in. And I would have to teach a class at Stanford um, after lunch. And so to wake up the undergrads, I'd walk in and be like, women are not small men. And we're going to talk about X, Y, Z or whatever it is that the training class or training principles class was about. Um, and then as you know, it really started evolving and understanding that there are sex differences from birth, as well as the hormonal influences that happen at puberty, it became a tagline. And it just resonates with so many people where they're like, wait, what do you mean? Women are not small men. Oh, oh yeah, we're not. Can you bullet point a couple of things? Obviously, everybody can go access that TED Talk, but what are some of the maybe surprising things that you even discovered um, or that other people have told you that they found surprising that you reveal in this talk how women are from birth different? Well, we know that just from a morphological standpoint, women have smaller hearts, they have smaller lungs. Um, they have different muscle fibers so that women are more endurant, but we do better with power training. We also have different uh, proteins within, the, within our muscles that allow us to use more fatty acids. Our metabolism for exercise fueling is different. So as we start going through all the schematics of the sex differences, and then we start adding in the estrogen progesterone, it's you could just name a bullet point, anything. And it's all different, right? And I think the biggest eye-opening, especially now, is all the trendy diets where people are like, oh, the ketogenic diet, the intermittent fasting, the low-carb, high-fat. We look at the, the population in which those originated, and they were clinically obese men trying to lose weight for surgery or for other health reasons. And then it got pulled over into the fitness world. And it's not viable for women because we have different set points for thresholds of, of energy conservation. Our appetite hormones are directly related to estrogen, estrogen perturbations. Our hypothalamus has two areas that are sensitive for noting our calorie intake and, and how much nutrition is available versus men's one. So there's so many different things that get wrapped up in that diet culture and is not appropriate for women. And we see it. We see this huge... You know, women might have success for three months and then they start going, well, what's wrong? It's not working for me. Or I did something wrong. I cheated. I'm not following it right. And so we have all this negative self-talk, but we know inherently it's because the data doesn't represent the population that's trying to be successful. Hmm. Now, have you been involved in any research or can you tell us about any research that does talk about what is most nutritionally robust for women in particular. Again, not to every everybody is a little individual, but knowing something like a ketogenic diet is not going to work. That's high in protein and low in carbs, and and I think 
most people, uh, but women especially, know that the complex carbohydrate is so certainly for endurance a very important fuel source. What are some kind of key pointers that women should think about for nutrition? So it's not necessarily following a diet. It's the timing. Nutrient timing is so important for women. We know from some robust research that women do better in a fed state. So this doesn't mean like a full meal before training. It just means something small that they might have to bring blood sugar up, signal to the brain that there is nutrition available to overcome the exercise stress. And then when we're looking at the timing on the other side, we have a very small window before we come back down to what we call metabolic baseline, where we're just right back to where we started. And that window is much smaller than men. So it's the timing of food in or around training to support the training stress and recover from it. And so many women miss that opportunity. And if we're not taking a hold of that opportunity, then we end up burning more lean masses fuel and kind of hitting ourselves against a brick wall if we're trying to build that lean mass. Um, then if we were to fuel appropriately, recover from it, so then our body can actually go, hey, wait, we have the nutrition and amino acids available for building lean mass. We don't have to break it down because we don't have food. Hmm. Okay. So for the women out there that are listening, which I'm sure there's many, um, who might be struggling with weight, let's say, whether it's postmenopausal or just weight in general, they have tried various diets, they've tried different exercise regimes and really are struggling with that, that hitting that kind of metabol metabolic um, plateau. What are some tips you could tell them about like best time to exercise or is there a best time to exercise? Um, and you know, what, what is an, what's an ideal type of snack before that? and nutrition afterwards? So the best time in exercise is when you are motivated to do it. Yay. And thank you for That's the answer I would give too, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's when you can do it. And it doesn't have yeah. to be a massively long session because people get it in their head. Oh, I have to carve out an hour or more to go to the gym or do this. It's not, we know that if you're doing short bursts of high intensity throughout the day, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, whatever, it gives you so much benefit. So it's not about, you know, I have to actually plan. It's putting it in how it fits with your lifestyle. And when we're talking about in a fed state, say you get up and you're like, okay, I've got to go. I have 15 minutes. I'm going to do this high intensity sprint interval session in my basement before the kids get up. I'm not saying have a full meal. I'm saying half a banana. It could be half a piece of toast. It could be a protein fortified coffee. Um, so might be a hundred calories and that's enough to bring blood sugar up and signal to the brain. Hey, we've got some, some fuel to support what's happening next. And then you can have your breakfast afterwards, whatever your protein oriented breakfast is, and then making sure that you're having regular doses of protein at every meal, because that's what works best for women. We're looking at, you know, 25, 30 grams of protein at every meal, evenly spaced, fueling for your training. And then if you're still struggling with weight and weight loss, it's a calorie restriction away from training in the evening. Don't have an after dinner snack. 
Don't have a, a pre-bed snack. Just take away that extra 100 or 150 calories or take it away from dinner, from some um, some of the aspects of, of people overfilling their plate because they haven't eaten so much in the day. So it's a calorie restriction away from training, but a very small amount so that your body is not getting into an overhyped sympathetic drive, too much inflammation, and not willing to let go of extra weight. Hmm. Now, how about the opposite issue? Because there are some people out here who are struggling to get that lean mass, um, and it's not that they're, you know, it's not an exchange. They're holding on to fat. They're just not able to gain weight, and maybe their hunger is not that great. And I'm kind of talking about myself in a way because ever since I've gone through menopause, my my, um, I mean, when you talked about estrogen, like it's it is huge. For me, I have noted, like, I don't have an appetite at all like I used to. Yeah. Um, I could go a long time and not, and not even get any hunger signals. And so for me, I have to really, really be um, cognizant about getting food in. And I know that a lot of people think, well, that's a really poor Lara, sad problem to have, but it's, it's just different. It's just that it's, it's, it's a different type of struggle because um, I obviously want to support my bones, I want to support my muscles, and I want to maintain my strength. Um, so how about people who are struggling to kind of maintain or even build some muscle mass? Yeah, I mean, I, I get into that same as well. When I'm highly stressed, I don't eat. I forget to eat. And so the first thing that goes is lean mass. And when you're in this situation where you've gone through menopause or you're perimenopause, you already have the signaling to lose lean mass. We don't have a lot of anabolic stimulus. We don't have an appetite. What do we do, right? So it is, we need to think about abundance and we need to think about abundance of amino acids. So I always tell people, whenever you're reaching for something, even if you have to like set an alarm to remind yourself to have something as protein oriented. A lot of women are finding success in um, taking essential amino acids in a, in a drink. So, you know, if they're having fluid throughout the day, it has essential amino acids in it. So it's not just the branch chains that people talk about, but all the essential amino acids, because that helps boost circulating amino acids, which helps preserve lean mass. It doesn't necessarily help with the hunger side of things. And this is something that we have to relearn where I have... Um, a lot of athletes who have just gotten so conditioned to, to not eating what they need to, they've lost those hunger cues. And we see it, you know, in the menopause transition as well as in postmenopause. So we, we play a little game where we're like, okay, for three days in a row, we're going to fuel for what we're doing. We're going to eat lunch and then we're not going to have anything until dinner. And during that time frame, write down how you feel. Are you feeling really large? tired? Are you getting more focused or not? Just write down all of those things because that is what your hunger cues are. So we start seeing a pattern develop over the course of those five hours of no food in an active individual. And we can start pulling out what the new hunger cues are. So then we can be like, when you start feeling really headachy and lethargic, it's not reaching for caffeine. It's not going, oh, I need to sleep. It's you need food. So then we start really being able to cue in what those new cues are like. So then they can remember to eat, not based on stomach growling and feeling shaky, but based on these cues that their body now is telling them I need fuel. That's exactly what I feel. I know when I start to get spacey and tired, 
Um, that's my hunger cue. So the brain fog that women do talk about in that is so like every kind of symptom that you read about for uh, menopausal women, that brain fog is in the top three. Is this related to that in addition to the hormones um, being depleted? Well, estrogen crosses the blood-brain barrier really easily. And so in perimenopause, when we have times of estrogen dominance, then we'll have an uptick in serotonin and dopamine, and then they crash down just the same as estrogen. And so we start to have mood changes, anxiety, brain fog, because of the neurotransmitter changes that are so rapid. Um, after we hit menopause and now in postmenopause, we don't have estrogen that is affecting the neurotransmitters, but we still have more of a, a time relapse w- with cognition and reaction, and it has to do with neurotransmitters. So when we're looking at how do we improve that, we can look at, again, using some branched-chain amino acids, eating some protein, making sure that we have adequate leucine, because leucine is super important. It uses the same um, transport mechanism into the brain is tryptophan. So if we have a lot of leucine circulating, it helps get into the brain and reduce tryptophan getting into the brain. So we eliminate that fatigue and brain fog. So this is another reason why protein is so important. And if that's not working, then we can look at using some um, adaptogens like ashwagandha or rhodiola, which actually support that focus in that cognition. Um, so it, it becomes more of an individual scope, but there is definitely things that we can do from a physiological nutritional standpoint to really help with that brain fatigue and brain fog. Now, I know you've written some books. Are, are any of these books detailing this kind of information? Yeah, the new one that came out in May, Next Level, is all about peri and postmenopause. So it talks about how the body composition changes, um, talks about adaptogens, it talks about you know menopause hormone therapy, what are some of the options or not, um, how to change your training, how to eat accordingly, stay out of low energy availability. So all the things that I've gotten mm-hmm. questions about ever since the first book, Roar, came out that Celine and I put together to actually create this book for active women. I love it. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your take on bioidentical hormones and how they're helpful or not? So the thing about bioidentical hormones is people get all freaked out about it. If they come from a compounding pharmacy, this is where we have to worry because the dosage is very arbitrary. There are FDA-certified bioidentical hormones, and the reason why, if you need to use them, then you go that route and getting a prescription so that you know that what you are getting is the right dosage. It's not arbitrary. There is definitely a time and a place for them. Um, They are a therapy. It's not a replacement. A lot of people are like, oh, hormone replacement. We're not replacing anything. We're looking at how are we going to get through this menopause transition and still maintain a quality of life. Some people can do it through training and nutrition, adaptogens, and other preventative aspects, but other women really do need to go down the the hormone route. And so the bioidenticals, when they are from a prescription, tend to be one of the best ways to go. Yeah, I I actually do them, and they have been so amazing for me. Um, Personally, I haven't had any any of the symptoms that go, I mean, my menopause was like, oh, I mean, it's not a big deal, except that I did 
It, yeah, it's great. So, but I have gone to a functional medicine doctor, done all those type of things. I mean, it's very, very specific. It's there's nothing arbitrary or random. It's very specialized. So exactly, um, yeah, exactly. And and that's it, why yeah. you have to work with someone who understands it. Don't just go to your GP and be like, "Hey, I'm experiencing this. What can I get?" Because it is very much changeable. Just like your natural hormones, they have a pulse every day and they change every day. So your body's used to lots of different fluctuations and it does take some time to dial it in. Yeah. And even so, even that, I, I mean, I get my hormones checked every four months, you know, because like it was going great and then I got a little bit estrogen high and so they, you know, changed my dose. So it is important to, to get somebody who knows what they're doing and then follow through regularly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to read your mission because I'd like you to dive into this a little bit more. You said, my vision is a world of healthy women who understand their bodies, know how to work with their unique physiology, know their periods are ergogenic, aids, and create positivity around being a woman in sport. Can you discuss how periods are ergogenic aids? I love that because I think just like all these changes that we have, whether we have our period or not have our period, it's there's such a negativity around uh period or no period. It's like when you have it, oh, it's such a pain. And then when you don't have it, I, you know, it, but I think it's like, I love this perspective of, of bringing a positive light and how, how you use it as an aid. So I'd love to hear what you mean by that. Yeah. So our menstrual cycle, of course, we have times where the hormones go up and they come down and there's been such that negative stigma around it. I mean, it's such a taboo stemming from thousands of years ago from religion and the suppression and everything that goes around it. So it's kind of come ingrained that people need to whisper about it, even still now. But when we look at, at what those hormones can do for us, we know that um, estrogen is anabolic. We know that progesterone can be calming. They work together. They work against each other. And they affect every system of the body. And when we have a period, then we know that we are healthy from an endocrine function standpoint, that we know that our body is resilient to stress. We can take on daily stress. We can take on exercise stress. We can overcome that stress and keep adapting and progressing. So this interesting kind of mentality in sport is not to have your period, to use oral contraceptive pills, to, you know, skip the placebo pill week so you don't have a withdrawal bleed. Or if you're amenorrheic, then people are saying, oh, wow, you're training hard enough because you've lost your period. And that is the exact opposite of what we should be thinking. We should be going, great, I have my period. I know that I'm healthy. I can take on more strain. I can take on more stress. I can adapt faster. And when we look at the way the hormones work through the body and we have this, the follicular phase of low hormone, then we have a raise of estrogen around ovulation, and then we have estrogen progesterone that rise in the second half of the cycle. We can tailor our training accordingly, looking at how our immune system is responding. We're really resilient to virus, bacteria, and stress in the low hormone. We have this boost right around ovulation. And then after ovulation, all of the body's um, energetics go to building a really lush endometrial lining. So we have to look at tapering some of our other stress, especially towards the end of that high hormone phase. So if we have a period and we have the, the bleeding phase, then it's a benchmark. We're like, great. I know that I'm adapting to the training. I'm adapting to the stress. I can tailor my training accordingly. But if there's a misstep 
in our period, in our bleed patterns. It also gives us the chance to have a pause and be like, what's going on? What am I overstressed? Am I overtrained? Am I not getting enough sleep? There's all these other things that can affect the bleed pattern. So it's a really good checks and balances for a female's body to be like, hey, yeah, great. So when we talk about a period being an ergogenic aid, it gives us insight and objective data that men don't have. And we can use that to our advantage to build up when we need to build up, back down when we need to back down. And every woman is different. So tracking their cycle and understanding the nuances within their cycle can give them even more personalized, individualized, objective data to dial in their daily life. I was going to ask you, um, do you have a particular device or app that you recommend for tracking? It's if someone's really data hungry, then I say wild AI because it is top of the top for femtech where it is uh, algorithms based on the female environment, based on female information. It uses artificial intelligence to learn you and your cycle, the more data that gets that you put in. So then it can feed back and be like, Hey, you know, on day 23, it appears that you have a low day every month. So why don't we change up your training? So it gives you insight. Um, if you're not so data hungry and you're like, yeah, I just need to track and I can keep track of other things on my own. You can use something like fitter woman, which is geared for the athletic woman. You can use old fashioned pen and paper and a calendar if you want. So whatever works for you. Um, and FemTech does have a lot to catch up on. So we see a lot of wearables coming out with menstrual cycle tracking, um, coaching apps and that kind of stuff, but they're more of a, oh yes, me too. So you want to look within the FemTech industry to see what's there and appropriate for you. If you're looking to track and also want to see fertility, then maybe you want to use something like Hello Clue. But if you're an active woman and you want to know all the ins and outs of how training affects you and how your menstrual cycle affects training, then you want to go with Wild AI or Fitter Woman. And one last thing before I go back to menopause, um, what are what are your thoughts about contraceptives um, in terms of what they're doing physiologically? Uh, that's a big can of worms. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. I know. Um, so I always sit on that fine balance uh, between health and performance. And I, I sit on a working group that has a room full of endocrinologists and sports med doctors, me as a physiologist, a sociologist, and we get in these conversations of what's health and what's performance. So the endocrinologists are like, there's no reason why you shouldn't use an oral contraceptive pill. Um, especially if you're looking for contraception. As a, as a performance physiologist, I say we need to pause there because we know that there is a dampening of a lot of our adaptations when we're using an oral contraceptive pill. It also masks if someone is getting into low energy availability or relative energy deficiency in sport. We know that it does not help with bone density. We know that... Um, when we're looking at body composition, there are some um, formulations of the progestin component that's within the different OCs that can affect body composition. So it becomes very sport specific. If we're looking at hormonal contraception and we want to use it for health reasons um, because we have PCOS, endometriosis, heavy menstrual bleeding, then we look at using an IUD uh, because it's very localized 
the progestin aspect of a IUD, it doesn't become systemic. You still ovulate after about six to eight months. You can still track your cycle. So there's lots of benefits of going that route. Um, same with like the depot injection or the, the vag ring. So there are other options that are not as systemic or impactful as an oral contraceptive pill. It's just, unfortunately, when a young girl goes to her physician and says, a heavy regular periods, or, you know, I start, I'm in sport and I'm having a regular heavy bleeding, or I'm concerned about my skin, the automatic response is we'll put you on an oral contraceptive pill, which masks the problem, but doesn't solve it. Hmm. So what would be some of the pro what would be some of the issues with somebody having a very heavy period that, that, that a physician might, you know, say, go on a, a birth control and that'll, that'll help it out. Well, that'll help the cramping or the premenstrual PMSing. Yeah, so there's around 35% of women struggle with heavy menstrual bleeding. So this is like bleeding through sanitary products, heavy clots, major, major cramping. And they don't know that that's not normal because we don't even talk about what is a normal bleed pattern, how much do we lose, how long does it last. Um, so when we look at what heavy menstrual bleeding is, uh, we know that IUD is the one way to go, but for young girls who are like, it's too invasive, then we can look at using an oral contraceptive pill. Yes, there are definitely health benefits for using an OC, but it shouldn't be the first port of call. Um, there are definitely other options that we can look at instead of just automatically going, Hey, here's an OC. A lot of younger girls who first start their periods, they're going to have a couple of years of irregular periods. That's just part of developing. And people freak out about that. They go, oh, wait, I'm not normal. I need help with this. And so, oh, I'll give you an OC to give you a normal period. But it's not a real period because it downregulates your own hormones. It's a withdrawal bleed, so it's not representative. It is not... Um, helping with hypothalamus, understanding what's going on because it downregulates all of that. Uh, but definitely if someone is struggling with heavy, heavy bleeding and cramping and is bedridden for a few days at the beginning of their period, get some help because mm -hmm. there's definitely options out there and it doesn't even have to be an OC. There's other medications that you can start the day your period starts to eliminate that heavy bleeding. Okay. So let's go to the other spectrum of women who are no longer bleeding and one of the big uh, concerns in with menopause is the, is bone density. What are some suggestions that you would give? And I know this again is just capturing like a snapshot. But what would be some suggestions for women in the menopausal state um, or postmenopause who are concerned about the bone density loss? Yeah. So I think the stats are we lose uh, one third of our bone mass within the first four years of menopause. And mm -hmm. a lot of the body composition changes and the bone loss start actually in the years previous to that one point in time. So we know that multi-directional stress on the bone helps significantly. So I'm not talking about running because running is not a strong enough multi-directional stress. It actually can help 
degrade bone rather than help improve bone. So we look at resistance training, heavy resistance training to put multi-directional stress on the bone. And the other is jump training. So we have 10 minutes of jumping three times a week, and it could be jump rope, could be um, you know counter movement jumping, so proper plyometrics. But we want that multi-directional force to go through the bone upon landing in order to stimulate bone change and bone remodeling, especially when we lose estrogen. So when we're looking at women who have hit menopause, postmenopause, have low bone density, we start out with um, some functional movements and heavy lifting to get strong enough then to apply plyometric type work or jump training. And we have some really cool research and my colleague has some really cool research that comes out and shows the increase in bone density with just those 10 minutes, three times a week. It's incredible. I know. And I, I, always am imploring people to, um, you know, especially the people that have been with me and have, you know, prepared the body for the plyometrics. And I think that sometimes in their mind, it's like, I better not jump because I might hurt something. And it's like, as I get older, I shouldn't be jumping around. It's like the, actually the opposite. Exactly. Uh, it, right. It really, and I, I say, it's also joyful. Like we, you know, we used to jump all around as kids and somehow we have in our mind, like this downward decline. And that would include, eliminating these things that actually are going to be very good for um, challenging the bone and therefore, you know, stimulating those bone cells to grow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the resistance training aspect as well is more power-based. There's been a couple of studies that come out in the past six weeks that have looked at 70 and 80 year old women doing resistance training, but not your typical, you know, eight to 10 reps kind of stuff. They actually put them through the ringer to do heavy power-based training for them. And they improve their lean mass, their bone density, and balance and being able to step up and up up and down off a curb without the fear of falling. So it's that power-based stuff that is so important, not only for functionality and quality of life, but to have a quality of life when we get to the later stages. Yeah. So I want to ask you a personal question. Since you get all this information and you're like right in the most recent research, what is your daily kind of performance activities look like? Uh, I'm all over the show. I say <laughs> that, um, because I'm not trained for anything. I come from a long line of endurance and racing and that kind of stuff. But now I like to get up and do some kind of movement. Um, a lot of times it is in the gym doing weight stuff because I find that if I'm not doing weight stuff, I don't feel that great. Um, I'm doing a lot of high intensity work because it's, it's, it's time sensitive in the fact that I don't have a lot of time, so it's good. Um, but I'm, I'm sorry also, to interrupt. When you do weights, are you doing um, like – barbells? Are you doing dumbbells? Yeah. Combination. Combination. So when I'm at home, I'll hit CrossFit a couple of times a week, but then I'll also do some subsidiary training, like heavy squats and deadlifts with the barbell. But now that I'm here outside of DC, the gym doesn't have a barbell. I bought a barbell. Yeah. So it's hanging out so I can work on technique and, and doing higher rep stuff, but um, using the dumbbells and doing dumbbell heavy lifting in, in the fitness center here. Um, is kind of the, the go-to, but it's, you know, 20, 30 minutes of really specific heavy lifting because then you're completely gassed out after that. So if you have more energy to go after that, then you didn't do the lifting right. Mm. What do you think is the biggest or some of the biggest, um, misunderstandings about fitness, women in fitness, um, in terms of 
performance, in terms of feeling like you're in shape, a good balance shape, and all of those elements of being in shape, which is endurance, power, um, flexibility, et cetera. Where do you f find that you're like, fr like sometimes want to grind your teeth because there's, there's some really uh, major misunderstandings st out there that are getting passed along through magazines it's, or social media, yeah. et cetera. It's still resistance training. Mm -hmm. It's totally resistance training because you look and people are, you know, women are afraid of quote getting bulky, but it's really, really difficult for women to get bulky. Uh, if they're younger and they're mesomorphic, then yes, it's possible. But as you get older, you need an abundance of food and nutrition and we start to lose our anabolic stimulus and our estrogen and other mechanisms for actually building that lean mass. So it's just a matter of, of getting strong. And when you see these programs of like doing body weight stuff as quote resistance training or eight to 10 reps, three sets with lightweight as resistance training, that's fine if you're younger and you're starting to get into resistance training as the phase in, but the we know that women, by the nature of the morphology of the fibers, do so much better with power training and less recovery between because we are endurant. So the protocols that are out there are still very male-centric and just generalized to women. So we're working on, okay, what is the appropriate type of strength training for women? How are we developing that neuromuscular strength as well as stimulus for lean mass? And there's so much misinformation about what you should be doing in the gym, how your technique should be, what kinds of sets and reps, because again, it's based on protocols for men and people are afraid to go into the gym, especially, you know, when you're in your mid to late forties, fifties, growing up with the Jane Fondas and the, and the supermodels who are calories in, calories out, fat burning, and women are afraid to do anything that's not cardiovascularly oriented. But if we're looking for optimal balance for quality of life, you have to do a range of things. And it's the push, it's the pull, it's the lunge through high intensity as well as resistance. Mm. So uh, do you have this kind of program online that people can access, like a video or something? Or We... Is we it don't your book? Have, yeah, through the book. And we have online education that talks about, you know, what to do, soups to nuts for women throughout the whole age span. But as for specific training programs, I personally don't, but I've partnered with Erin Carson with EC Fit, um, with the Betty Rocker, you know, so she has some really good programs as well. You have good <laughs> programs, right? <laughs> so you. there are a lot of people who do that really well. So for me to reinvent the wheel, I find it, it's not that appropriate. So I can definitely direct people. Um, pelvic floor health is another thing when women are getting older and afraid to lift heavy, it's like, okay, well, we got to look at pelvic floor health as well. And how do we do that? So there's some really great resources out there too. Um, but we have a lot of that on our website and our resources page and happy to answer questions of, of you know, that come in or where to go and, and how to find stuff too. Oh, I love that, Stacey. And of course your book really details the the why and the how um, as well. So for people that want to look at it and read it, um, it, it it's a beautiful looking book too. It looks really fierce. <laughs> oh, thanks. So can you uh, just share with everyone where they can find out more about you? Uh, the website is drstacysims.com. Um, and that has everything, all the courses, 
all the industry projects, the research, that kind of stuff. And then on social media, we're Dr. Stacy Sims on Facebook and Instagram. So we give little tidbits of information on there and, and keep trying to put out the, the real accurate female-centric information for women. I love that. That's so important. It really is because it is it, it from everything from from size to performance, so many things to which we eat is, is really based on these um, young 22-year-old men <laughs> and that just doesn't apply to us. So we we need to exactly. speak up for ourselves. So thank you so much yes. for being such a um intelligent and passionate um kind of pioneer for for improving women's performance and health. I really appreciate talking to you. Oh, thanks so much. Um, and thanks for having me. Thank you. And for everyone that's listening, make sure you check out Stacey. And as always, I'm pulling for you. 